This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, December 28th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, a response to the ruling on Diamond Ridge, county adjusts Pinion Park restrictions, remembering a labor history landmark, and a mountain weather forecast. Last Thursday, December 22nd, county officials and residents of Deep Creek Mesa received big news regarding a lawsuit over land at Diamond Ridge. Back in May, the Board of County Commissioners unanimously voted to rezone 40 acres of open land out past the Telluride Airport for an affordable housing project. The rezoning was immediately controversial, especially amongst residents of Deep Creek Mesa and the Aldosoro Ranch development. As a group, they sued the county and the town of Telluride over the proposed affordable housing. Last week, the District Court of San Miguel County passed down a decision vacating the county's decision to rezone the land, effectively barring any affordable housing from moving forward on that site. David Lavender, a plaintiff whose family has lived on the Mesa for generations, says he and his neighbors were relieved by the judge's order. In terms of reaction, I and my neighbors are, you know, extremely pleased, obviously, but from the, you know, from from the perspective of preservation, I think this is a very ill-conceived, you know, project from from the get-go. You know, the process was uh, was not transparent, was deeply flawed. Um, we had a, a you know a commissioner who should have recused um, herself. But I think the real takeaway from the judge's ruling is that the Diamond Ridge property in PUD is zoned forest. Uh, agriculture, and it's designed, quote, to preserve large, relatively remote areas um, and is, quote, considered inappropriate for substantial development. District Judge J. Stephen Patrick found the county's move to rezone the parcel unlawful because, quote, County Commissioner Hillary Cooper abused her discretion by not recusing herself from the final rezoning decision, unquote. Although Commissioner Cooper did not have a financial interest in the development, plaintiffs successfully argued her advocacy for the affordable housing project made her biased. Lavender says he and the other plaintiffs who brought the lawsuit understand the need for affordable housing, but locating it on a mesa violates a long tradition of open space. I know this isn't the end of this situation. I know the county and the town seem uh, resolute in their desire to build, again, a community um, on one of our mesas, which are, you know, is, again, antithetical. As much as my heart goes out to displaced individuals who lack secure housing, I'm also worried about displacing or destroying the open spaces that, uh, that make this place what it is. Both the county and the town of Telluride, which was collaborating with the county on the housing project, say they have not yet met to determine next steps. In a statement, the town says, quote, Telluride will continue to remain highly focused on helping to provide our community with affordable housing options in partnership with the county, unquote. Lavender says the future now rests with town and county decision making. We'll see what uh, you know, the ball now is in the uh, town and county's court, so We'll see ultimately what their response is. I think the ruling is um, very comprehensive. It draws deeply on precedent. And I think it's it's a really solid ruling. So I'm not sure where we go from here. 
Government officials in both the town and the county will be meeting in early January to discuss next steps. Looking back on affordable housing in 2022, a milestone must have been the successful lottery for the homes at Pinion Park. The affordable development in Norwood is a collaboration between San Miguel County and area nonprofit rural homes. Lois Major, an attorney working on the project for the county, says although September's lottery was a success, it brought up some questions which the existing deed restrictions didn't answer. You know, in the fall we had the lottery and actually put the document to the test. And we brushed up against situations that we hadn't fully anticipated. Major came before the Board of County Commissioners last week to recommend tweaks to the Pinion Park deed restrictions. Adjusting these rules will guide who can buy a house in Pinion. The changes that Major recommends will ensure homes in Pinion Park best serve county housing needs. The first change simplifies the process for area businesses and organizations trying to buy a home for their workforce. Uh, in the definitions page, we created a new definition for entity owner to try to limit. It was getting a little unwieldy. We had like the business owner, then we had school districts and the hospital districts, all, a lot of special districts that we hadn't anticipated would be purchasing these homes. And so we created this entity owner definition that includes business owners, special districts, and the land contributor so that they all have basically a new name for the non-individual owners. Businesses are limited to purchasing two homes in Pinion, and they must have a workforce located in Norwood. Some businesses and organizations with a workforce located in Telluride have gotten exceptions. Major says that property management businesses and rental agencies are not allowed to buy a home at Pinion Park, she explains. So if your business is the business of owning homes, residential homes, as a property manager or a rental manager, mobile home park, any type of rental home ownership, if that's your business, you're not allowed. This didn't seem fair. They were had all these houses <laughs> that they were getting a cheap house and who knows if they were going to try to rent it for their you know, for profit. So we just excluded those to when we started to play out the scenarios that seemed like the, the most equitable thing to do. Another change specifies that Pinion Park owners cannot own another residential property in the area without an exception. There could be a situation where uh, you want to buy something, maybe you're, and maybe you're moving, maybe you're investing, whatever. We're not discussing the merits of what that would be, but if you do want to own a house, another residential property within the radius, you would have to ask for an exception ahead of time. Because Pinion Park is affordable housing, the county will only rent to those who don't have another place to live in the area. However, Major says there is almost always a way to get an exception. Except when it comes to income level, known in housing lingo as an AMI, which Major says is a hard and fast rule. There's very few incidents where there's no exceptions allowed because it's hard to foresee what situation may um, be open to an exception. The, 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 there's a couple hard and fast in there. Like one of them is the 120 AMI because yeah. that's, in this case, um, the money it requires that. Major also presented on tweaks to the deed restrictions at Rio Vistas 2, a development in Lawson Hill. 
Major says that back when the county set a maximum income for Rio Vista 2, it didn't have a plan for someone who lived there and started making more money. But then they didn't allow for the purchasers of these homes to have any upward economic mobility. Recently, a resident who had received a raise was at risk of losing her housing in Rio Vista because she was now making too much for the deed restriction, Major explains. Um, at the last compliance, there was a situation where a woman who had a good job was making too much. And um, County Attorney Amy Markle and I fashioned a letter to say this was not the intent of this deed restriction and she should be considered qualified. She's lived there I don't know how long. Mm -hmm. And that sort of got me thinking we should <clears throat> immortalize this in a new document. After carefully going over all the changes, county commissioners unanimously voted in favor of major's changes. The tweak to the housing codes further enable businesses to use county housing for their workforces. They also assure that upwardly mobile residents will be allowed to stay in their county housing even as they start to make more money. San Miguel County has been working to update and reinstall signage on a historic site in the reaches of the San Juans. The signage is for a small camp in a machine gun nest occupied when the state declared martial law to quell labor strikes. KOTO News took the opportunity to retell a colorful piece of local history. Park Supervisor for San Miguel County, Rich Hamilton, begins. So if you go up and over Imogene Pass and you go towards the Ure County side of the pass, there's another little spur that goes up to a bench or where people can park and view Red Mountain. From there, you can look up to your right to the ridge at 13,365 feet, and that's where Fort Peabody is located. So Colorado tourism promoters extol our scenery, our fall colors, our snow-capped peaks, but nobody mentions our historic machine gun nest at the top of Imogene Pass between Telluride and Uray, a machine gun emplacement and a small wooden fort survive as silent testimony to workers' struggles. That's Andrew Gulliford, a professor of history at Fort Lewis College in Durango, who has written extensively on the American West. The oddly placed machine gun nest they speak of has its roots in a labor revolt during Telluride's mining era. In Telluride in 1903, the mine workers went out on strike, and Governor James Peabody, in collusion with the wealthy mine owners, called out the Colorado National Guard. And running the National Guard was Bukele Wells, a captain. He had mass deportations, kicking people out of town on special trains. They filed false criminal charges. There were beatings. You know, nobody, nobody, there's no due process. There's no judge, there's no juries. They're just thrown out of town. As illegally deported miners trickled back into Telluride over Imogene Pass, National Guardsmen under Wells' command built a wooden sentry post or redoubt complete with small stove, a flagpole, and a stone sniper or machine gun nest with a Colt rapid-fire machine gun. That fort was named Peabody after Colorado's governor. Soldiers stationed at the pass were on constant watch for Union organizers, who, 
kicked out of San Miguel County, would risk their lives in attempt to sneak back in, in order to continue their labor action. Hamilton says the remote location of the fort testifies to the way of life at that time. The military was up there year-round, but they had a little fireplace, and I'm sure life was harsh, both for the miners and for everyone in, involved in that period of time. Yeah, I think it is a very important site for labor history in the West. There was turmoil with all kinds of violence as the miners were dissatisfied and the mine bosses were basically greedy. So it's really an attempt by the mine owners to stop unionization. But the mines were terribly dangerous. Coal mines were dangerous. Gold and silver mines were dangerous. So yes, they wanted better wages, but they also wanted safety and they wanted an eight-hour workday. And thanks to them, we have it. There were uh, big, big boarding houses close to the mines and most of those have all collapsed and fallen in. There are a few uh, still scattered around between Silverton and Uray, and so housing was a problem then. It's, a, it's certainly a problem now, but the mine owners knew they had to build housing, and they also had food at the boarding houses. So the most important person in the mine wasn't the mine superintendent, and it wasn't the miners, it was the cook because miners would simply quit if they didn't like the food. Hamilton leaves listeners with a last piece of advice. I would encourage everyone to go visit that historic site up on top of the ridge there. Not only can you learn a little bit about labor history in the West and visit and sort of look around and see where that machine gun was, would have been, and walk down the ridge on the other side back towards Telluride to see the sniper's nest, but then you can go bag Telluride Peak. With the mountains packed with snow and the ghosts put to rest, a trip up Imogene Pass will have to wait until spring. What wisdom or inspiration might the word duality bring to us this season? gather to share at next week's Bardic Trails Poetry Circle. Duality is the poetic prompt chosen by 2023's headlining poet, Jose Antonio Alcantara. Alcantara's debut collection, titled The Bitten World, came out in 2022. He is, in addition to a poet, a baker, mailman, bookseller, fisherman, electrician, and itinerant wanderer across western Colorado. The Poetry Circle takes place on Zoom at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, January 3rd. Pre-register online at telluridelibrary.org. Hunger is a daily reality for hundreds of thousands of people in Colorado. In Cortez, the Good Samaritan Food Center helps the community in the Four Corners region. As KSJD's Chris Clements reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, the need for donations to the food pantry has continued to grow since the COVID-19 pandemic first began. Food bank's really important in order for me to get the proper nutrition 
That's Rob, who asked that we only use his first name. He's one of many who are visiting the Good Samaritan Food Center to get food for themselves or for their families. Without the support that this facility provides, life would be much more complicated than it already is. Inside the Good Samaritan, it's warm, and people are busy shopping. Carol Westfall, a volunteer at the pantry, said that hunger in Cortez today is mostly about a basic lack of food and proper nutrition. It looks like people just need normal, everyday food. Nothing fancy, just rice, beans. I'm surprised at how many people look around and go, okay, I can make this and this and this. And they know how to cook and make something. They just don't have the means for it. Westfall, who's been volunteering at the Good Samaritan for over a year, said that she's noticed an increase in shoppers since she started. We are feeding more people, um, and there's a lot of people who are incredibly grateful out there, who are thankful for us for just simply getting the staples that they need. The USDA defines food insecurity as a lack of access to enough food for every person in a household to live a healthy life. According to the Food Bank of the Rockies, in Colorado and Wyoming, the number of individuals estimated to be food insecure in 2021 was one in eight. For children, that number was even higher, one in seven. Meanwhile, the need for donations to the food pantry has also risen stubbornly since the COVID-19 pandemic first started. So what I would share with people is that it's much um, worse than it was during COVID. That's Kirby Foster, the director of the Good Samaritan Food Center. We're seeing a much higher need. Uh, the impacts that started a couple of years ago have just compounded with uh, situations, you know, in the world, the war, supply chain, uh, inflation. Um, a lot of things are coming together and working in concert to make things very difficult for people. Foster, who used to shop at the Good Samaritan herself, said the biggest misconception people have in terms of hunger and its effects on Cortez residents is that it's a personal failing. And it's really a systemic problem. Um, it's not due to individual choices or lack of skill or lack of, you know, wherewithal or whatever people might assume about hunger. It's everyone is doing the very best they can and the system is uh, causing a lot of struggle for folks. Foster also said that she often sees volunteers shopping at the center and vice versa. It's very reciprocal. You know, we get people who volunteer and shop and shop and volunteer and give what they can. And uh, that's the part I love about this pantry is the reciprocity in the community and being able to be a source of that reciprocity for people to access, you know. It's, uh, it's important. We're, we're a small community and we're kind of isolated geographically. And uh, we appreciate everybody stepping up, and, but also we need some help. The reciprocal nature of this food pantry, where volunteers are also customers, means there's a deep level of understanding for those relying on its services. This is something that's not lost on community members like Rob. I find that the management here has a heart for the people to provide, and they do. 
Um, I see it as a gift from above. And I don't take advantage of it. I utilize it to the fullest of its potential. I like to give back, but right now I need to take. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements. New rules for Colorado's egg-laying hens go into effect on January 1st. KUNC's Ray Solomon reports the cage-free egg standard was hatched from legislation passed back in 2020. Eventually, all eggs sold in Colorado will have to come from cage-free hens. But that rule doesn't fully kick in for another two years. In the meantime, the state's egg-laying chickens will get a little more room, at least 144 square inches per hen, starting January 1st. That basically means fewer birds per cage. Bill Skebby is executive director of the Colorado Egg Producers. He says the change gives egg farmers two years to ramp up to a fully cage-free environment. And that still doesn't mean that, that hens are running around a huge facility all willy-nilly and, and uh, doing their chicken thing, but it does give the hens a different environment to live in. Skebby says cage-free eggs cost more to produce, mostly because of the manpower it takes to wrangle chickens on the loose. Ray Solomon, KUNC. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow tonight with a low around 15 degrees. Snow should be heavy at times, and an accumulation of 3 to 7 inches is possible. Thursday will be partly sunny with a high near 25 degrees. Thursday night should bring cloudy skies and a low of 10 degrees, with more snow showers possible. Snow is then likely to continue Friday during the day and into Friday night. The high should be around 30 degrees during the day, and the nighttime low should be around 25. This has been the news for Wednesday, December 28th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.